When were you saved? If you look at the Bible, the Bible describes five different times or five different answers to that question relating to when were you saved? So those are the, those are different answers for each of the five phases of salvation. Again, one salvation, five different aspects or five different phases of God's glorious salvation for us. With that said, let's introduce our speakers for the afternoon and hear about this great salvation and the five phases of that salvation. Starting first will be Colin, followed by Matthew Eastland, followed by Eric Carnell, followed by Zach Pipkin, and finally, I have to cross this guy off, our brother Newell is going to finish up with the fifth phase of salvation. Let's hear these brothers and rejoice in God's great salvation for us. Turn with me to Ephesians 1. We'll consider the first phase of salvation, the eternal phase. Amen. God's election. In Ephesians 1, let me read to you verses 2 through 6. Grace be to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Amen. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. That is the eternal phase of salvation. Yes. The key aspect of the eternal phase is election. What is election? Election is God's plan and choice from eternity to allow sin into the world and to save his elect from that sin. Since he is eternal and sovereign, God planned in eternity all that he does in time. There are no surprises to God. He planned to allow sin so that he could display his glorious grace in saving his elect from it and displaying his power and wrath on the rest. The eternal phase is the basis for all the other aspects of salvation that we will hear today. This aspect of salvation happened in eternity past, before the worlds were formed. According to Acts 15, 18, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Election is God's will, purpose, and plan. His will, his purpose, and his plan. In Isaiah 46, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. In Ephesians 1, verse 11, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. It is God's will, purpose, and plan. This is an act of God's mind. We read in Isaiah 14, verse 24, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. God, who quickeneth the dead, 
and calleth those things which be not as though they were, is what we read in Romans 4.17. It's an act of God's mind. He does whatsoever he wills, whatsoever he pleases. There's two main aspects of the eternal phase we want to consider. first one being condemnation. Sin was foreknown and planned. The imputation of sin was designed, and the reprobation of those who were not God's elect was designed as well. Proverbs 16.4, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Condemnation. What if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. God planned this. This is part of the eternal phase. Second Peter two nine, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. One more verse, Jude verse four. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Condemnation is dependent upon God's will, as we read. This condemnation happened in eternity past. It was planned. Most men totally ignore or deny this aspect of eternity past, that God would condemn men to hell. So we have condemnation. And then for us, there is salvation. Amen. In eternity past, God foreknew his elect. Yeah, right. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Amen. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. In Romans 9, 8, verse 29 and 30. Right. Us, the elect, we are chosen in Christ. First Peter 1, 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are predestinated to be God's sons. That's right. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Right. Ephesians 1, once again, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Consider that Christ was ordained to die. In eternity past, in this eternal phase, Christ was ordained to die. 1 Peter 1.20, who verily, Jesus Christ, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Christ was ordained to die for us, for God's elect, vessels of mercy. Heaven was prepared for the elect in eternity past. Before the worlds were formed, heaven was prepared. Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Amen. The elect, lastly, are saved from the plan of sin. We are saved from the plan of sin. That he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, whom he had afore prepared unto glory, according to Romans 9, 23. Vessels of mercy, who he had afore prepared unto glory. 
And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were, were ordained to eternal life believed in Acts 13, 48. What should this bring about in us? This eternal phase, what should it do to us? Should it give us uh, feelings of anxiety or angst that the Lord would choose men to go to hell and some to go to heaven, <clears throat> the unfairness of God? No, indeed, no. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. We are bound to give thanks always to God for you. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift of this eternal phase, of this choosing whom he would foreknow, choosing those who would be in heaven with him. Consider Romans 11, 33-36 and ending. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How, unspeak, uh, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Right. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen. We should praise the Lord for this unspeakable, unsearchable gift of salvation that he had for before the foundation of the world prepared us to be vessels of mercy and not vessels of wrath. Amen. Uh, you can go ahead and start turning to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Unfortunately, I'm going to have a bunch of verses that you've probably heard once or twice or three times already from other brethren at various points. Uh, I, I do want to take one brief moment to say that I'm, I'm thankful for the providence of God. I told Brother Jonathan to put me in wherever he felt was best, wherever there was no volunteer already. And uh, as some of you know, my favorite attribute of God is his justice. Always has been my favorite thing about him. And I get to speak to you about the legal phase of salvation. And in order to understand that properly, we are first going to look at the justice of God. So I get to have some fun sharing this with you. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4, describing our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. Amen. Our God is perfectly just and perfectly holy. If you're going to understand the legal phase of salvation, you have to understand the situation in which we are naturally in which all of mankind is naturally. Now, in many ways, the legal action of Christ coming to die for his people is one that, if you have any grasp of Christianity, any knowledge of Christianity, you've heard about. Anybody who claims to be a Christian whatsoever is going to speak about the death of Christ. But if they don't view properly man's state, and if they don't view properly what Christ's work did, then they don't get the true meaning of it. First of all, as I hope we would all know, Adam's transgression came upon mankind. The sentence was clear. The sentence was death. The great judge of the universe said, the day that thou eat, thou shalt die. And so death passed upon all men. We've actually had some of those verses mentioned already from Romans chapter 5. So legally in Adam, every single part of mankind is condemned. And if you look at Romans chapter 5, you'll see certain terms that keep appearing. Offense, transgression, 
condemnation. Although those things are legal terms. Through our representative, we stand condemned. We are criminals before the perfect and holy judge. And his, and his response is death. That is what is deserved. Everlasting death. Now, there is an error that is common among many people. They would say, well, Adam's sin doesn't apply to me. It's just my own. And I would have to reply, looking at Romans chapter 5, the fact that death passed upon all men through that. He was our head. We had no choice in the matter. He gave us the nature for sin. He corrupted us. Now turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. So, knowing the fact that we are condemned, that we are criminals, justly condemned to death, how is this to be corrected? We need justification. It's a biblical term, justification. What does it mean? Now, I've been told uh, in a number of years of schooling at a particular local university that justification is just as if I never sinned. It's a decent definition, but it doesn't do the full fact of the matter justice because if we were just as if we never sinned, then congratulations, you're as good as an angel. That doesn't satisfy what, what the Lord has promised to us. The Lord has promised to make us his children. We are not merely just as if we never sinned. We are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Amen. Now, we've already heard from Brother Colin God's plan on the matter, and what we're talking about now is God's execution of it. First, God planned that sin would enter into the world, that Adam would fall. That was his plan, that some would be sent to hell, that he created men for the subject of reprobation. First Peter 1, verse 2, says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, as we've just heard. God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace be upon you and peace be multiplied. God's election results in his sending of Christ and the sprinkling of his blood upon us. The execution of God's plan for salvation was the sprinkling of Christ's blood upon us. That's what we're looking at here, is the bringing of justification upon us by God. Now, we are criminals, and yet we have all these beautiful terminology as well in Scripture regarding our status before God now through Christ. Isaiah 42 tells them to speak comfortably to Jerusalem, to tell her that their warfare is accomplished, that their iniquity is pardoned. Again, we have a legal term. That crime, that sin, that sentence of death is pardoned. It's washed away. It's gone. That's done through the the blood shedding of Christ. We've been saved from the penalty of sin through Christ's act. We no longer have, when Jesus died on the cross, he took our place. He shed his blood. And so that sin no longer has a hold upon us. Turn to Romans 3. I had lots and lots and lots of verses, but I tried to sum it up as quickly as I could. As easily. Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare 
I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Amen. Jesus is our justifier. He's the one who made us just before God. How did he do so? He did so by his death on the cross. We have Adam at a point in time condemning us. And then we have Christ coming at the appointed time to save us from that. Now, you ask, what does this mean to us? How should we respond to this? Uh, If you would really quickly turn to Romans chapter 8. It's not very far. Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Well, what does this mean to us? You've heard multiple times that Christ's blood justifies us. So what does that mean? Romans 8.33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Right. I'm going to go back to what Brother Mark said this morning. What does it mean it is finished? Right. There is no work for you to do. There is no part for you to have to play to earn your salvation. It is finished. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? There is no charge. He's justified us. What this should mean to you is that you should never listen to someone who wishes to talk to you about something that you have to do to earn. There's no meaning to it. You are justified. You are paid for. You are pardoned. And our... thought on that at the end should be, as Brother Colin ended his thinking about the thanksgiving that we should have for Christ choosing us, what should our response be? But thanks be unto God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother an Hittite. And as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood, live. I present to you the vital phase of salvation. What a gift. We've got a problem. If if I was elected, if all God's children were elected in the past, and if Jesus died for all his elect, and I show up at the pearly, and I'm speaking as a man for a moment, okay, and I show up at the pearly gates, I can't get in. i got a problem. I stink. Right. I smell like sin. Yep. Whoa, that's an old creature standing there. No, there ain't no creature in them. There is nothing new in him. He's all old. He doesn't belong in heaven. So we have a problem. I can't get into heaven without a new creature being instilled inside of me. Right. 
This aspect of our salvation that we are given is often called the new birth in Scripture. It's called regeneration. Let me introduce it to you. It requires your personal existence. You have to exist in time. It is applied to you while you live at some point between conception and death. The vital phase is the basis for your practical salvation because how can you work out something that isn't worked into you? You have to have a new creature to act and to exercise and to be chastened and to learn. You have to first live. It's conditioned upon God, just like the other four phases that four of our five brothers will, will describe to you. It's totally conditioned upon God and not upon man. You can't control it. It's sort of like putting your finger on the wind, if you will. And we'll get there in a second. Uh, you can't bottle the wind. You can't define it, control it. You can't start it. You can't stop it. It just sort of is. So is everyone that is born in the Spirit. Men are born spiritually dead. That's our problem. You have to have a new spirit, a new creature put into you. It's called regeneration. It's dependent on the Spirit's will and power, and it is the individual new birth applied to you individually and personally. It's called several different things in the Bible. I chose this phase, by the way, because it's the one that, in my mind, goes over the top the fastest. When I see a verse in Scripture and I'm not sure where it goes, yeah, it's probably vital. Because I, I can't easily grab it and, and stick it in the right column. It's called several different things in the Bible. Consider, it's called washing of regeneration. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Right. It's called quickened in a couple places, Colossians 2, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. It's a quickening. It's called a new creature, Second Corinthians 5. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It's called being born again. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. It's called a begetting. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. In Revelation, it's called the first resurrection. Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death hath no power, that is hell. I'll, I'll turn you now to three different passages that are the best ones to explain the vital phase. And I would encourage you to pick the one that you like the best of those three just to remember when you hear vital, you remember this passage so you can explain it to yourself later on. Ephesians 2. Turn there with me, if you will. Now I'll quickly go through these. That's, that's my favorite. Ephesians 2. Verses 1, 5, and 10. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Then come down to verses, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The reason we can do good works and the reason we are willing to do good works is because we have a new creature 
We are the result of the workmanship of God and the new creation in Christ Jesus. Even though the Ephesian saints were already predestined and redeemed, as chapter 1 told us, there was another separate action by God that occurs in the process of time to each of them specifically that began the change from walking according to the course of this world to pursuing the good works that God ordained for them to follow. So there's something that happened in there to make them change, otherwise they would not have. That's Ephesians 2. That's my favorite. Now turn to John chapter 3. First word that springs to mind when you hear John 3 is Nicodemus. So this is a good one. These are several verses where he explains about being born again. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He goes on and says, Can I enter back into my mother's womb a second time? Jesus answered, Verily I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, You must be born again. And here's our wind verse. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. You can't control it or predict it. Tell it when to go or tell it when to stop. It just happens. And don't be too caught up in the fact that you may not be able to tell exactly a day that it occurred in your life. may not be able to. You might be able to point to the first time that you understood a point of conversion. You may be able to tell a day on that. But regeneration happened prior to that at some point. But don't be worried if you can't nail down the day because it's just like the wind. You can't quite put your thumb on it. It's okay. One of the most important marks of the act of regeneration is just like the wind. We don't physically ever hear God say, wind, blow. It just does. We see its effects. We can tell that it, in fact, is blowing. But we can't tell the exact moment or nail down a specific event. So don't get hung up on that. Okay, so that is John 3. Turn over to John 5, if you will. John 5, this is a good one, this is a good one, okay? Verse 21. 521. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Then the next couple of verses he explains that the Father has given unto the Son the authority to make those judgments among men. Verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That is passed. There's that present perfect tense indicating an action that is completed in the past, but is still present in the future. Verse 25 is our verse. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And they that hear shall live. There's the Ezekiel 16 passage brought forward into the New Testament, the passage that I started with. Thankfully, thanks be to God that at some point in our life, the Son of God passed by 
and said, live. And we heard it. We couldn't help but hear it. It was God talking. You couldn't turn it off. Even if you wanted to. They that hear shall live. He goes on and talks about some other things. In verse 28, he says, in distinction to regeneration, he describes the physical resurrection. Marvel not at this. Here's something really cool. For the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. It mirrors the same power, the similar activity of being risen from the dead, totally outside your own will or ability. But he says in distinction to it, it's not here yet. Verse 25 said, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Verse 28 says, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good into the resurrection of life and they that have done evil into the resurrection of damnation. So it's similar in comparison. So I'll leave that to your, to your consideration. So those are the three chapters that are the best. I encourage you to pick your, pick your favorite. Ephesians 2 is the quickened. Okay, that's, that's the quickened verse. John 3 is Nicodemus. And John 5 is the power of the voice of the Son of God. Let's see some examples. Just very briefly. I'll just name four of them very briefly. These are examples where, uh, where we can see the wind bl- has blown. We can see it blowing. We see the effects of it. But we don't know exactly what time it occurred. We see John the Baptist. That's the earliest example in the Bible. Who, as Daniel mentioned, it is proven. The Holy Spirit tells us that he leaped for joy in his mother's womb. How could he have been involved in that action whatsoever? But at some point prior to that, the Holy Spirit had said, live. We jump to the last example, or the uh, closest to death example in Scripture, by going to the thief on the cross in Luke 23. Something caused him to change his actions from the beginning of his crucifixion, where he was railing on Christ along with the other thief, to the end of his crucifixion, where Jesus told them that he would see him in heaven later that day. Something happened. Something happened. We turn to Acts 16, and we see Lydia, a seller of purple whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto those things which were spoken of, Paul. Right. Whose heart the Lord opened. Lydia didn't open her heart. She responded, though, didn't she? Yeah. Turn back to Nicodemus. We don't have to turn. turn uh, think again about Nicodemus. This is a good one. We read Nicodemus in John 3 because Jesus explained to him the doctrine. Think about Nicodemus himself. Why was he different than the other Pharisees? Why did he come to Jesus at night for a serious conversation about those things he was hearing? Why did he say that Jesus knew more than he did? Called him rabbi, master, teacher. Why did he say that he knew he was from God because of the miracles he was doing? Why was he able to see that? When all the rest of the Pharisees around him called Jesus a wine-bibber and said that he did those miracles by the power of Beelzebub. So already in Nicodemus, that desire proven that's the, that's the proof and the evidence that he's been regenerated. Think of Cornelius. We like Cornelius next 10. Before he met Peter and spoke in tongues and was baptized, he did the following. He was devout. He feared God, gave much alms, prayed to God always, fasted, and his actions came up for a memorial before God. He was regenerated at some point in there, but thankfully Peter converted him. So, in conclusion, thankfully you have a new creature. You've been given a part of you, something inside of you, that is worthy of heaven. I uh, encourage all of you to 
search within yourself and find that new creature, kind of isolate it, kind of define it, pick up the sword of the Spirit, kind of swing around a few times, breathe a little, help that new creature to breathe inside you, feed it, feed it with the Word of God, defend it, protect it, keep those inputs from the world away from it, let it grow, exercise it, so you become more and more like Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, no doubt every brother that's gotten up here before me has done a great job explaining all their points and exalting God to the highest and putting Him where He deserves to be. He deserves all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise, and all you brothers have done a great job putting Him there. But now it's time to work. Now it's time to respond. What marvelous truth we've all heard today, and it shall never grow old no matter how many times we hear it. We've been saved unconditionally, eternally, legally, and vitally. Hallelujah, what a Savior. But there's more. I'd like to talk to you about another phase of salvation called the practical phase. The practical phase is a result of God, the Father, eternally electing us, Christ the Son justifying us, and the Holy Spirit regenerating us. We know by Ephesians 2 that we were children of wrath and disobedience, aliens and strangers. And Colossians 1.21 tells us, We were alienated and enemies in our minds by wicked works. Yet now hath he reconciled us. So basically we were the enemies of God, unable to hear, obey, or please him. But thanks be to God for working our salvation out in the first three phases. We have received the spirit of adoption which cries, Abba, Father, according to Romans 8.15. And in Ephesians 4.24 we are told to put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. We now have His Spirit within us, a new nature, a new man. So we are able now to hear, obey, and please God by responding to the gospel we have heard. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And in Philippians 2.12, Paul states, Wherefore, my beloved... As ye have always obeyed, not as, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So in this practical phase, we are to work out the salvation that God has worked in us. We now want to do the things that please God. By obeying the gospel, we are able to save ourselves from error, despair, fear, and God's judgments. When thinking about saving yourself from God's judgment, think about the church at Corinth and how many could have saved themselves from weakness, sickness, and even death had they not taken the Lord's Supper unworthily, which Paul had clearly laid out how it was to go. When men change from a behavior that doesn't please God to a form of behavior that pleases God, this is called conversion and will take place over the course of the rest of one's life. To the degree we are converted, we will enjoy more peace, joy, and fellowship with the Father. Think about the prodigal son. He he did not lose his sonship by his righteous living. He lost the privilege of enjoying his sonship and and the fellowship with his father. There are also varying degrees of conversion. Think Paul to a great degree compared to Lot who if not for 2 Peter 2.7, we would not even know he was a child of God. We know that God the Father eternally elects men equally. Christ the Son justifies men equally. 
and the Holy Spirit regenerates men equally. But men are not judged equally while here on earth due to their individual responses to gospel preaching. Preaching the gospel, we now know, cannot possibly save men eternally, legally, or vitally, for God is responsible alone for these salvations. Preaching the gospel can only save men practically to an understanding God wants them to have so that while here on earth, if they believe and obey, they can experience blessings, peace, prosperity, and fellowship, and deliverance from God's judgments. This is the purpose for the gospel. As stated in James 1.21, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Now we know the engrafted word can only save us practically from God's judgment while here in this world. According to 2 Peter 1.10, if we believe and obey, we can make our calling and election sure and never fall. God is the only one that can make our calling and election sure, but by believing and obeying the gospel, we can assure ourselves that we are His and experience great confidence and peace in our practical phase of salvation. James 5, 19 and 20 says, Brethren, and if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. What death is this soul being saved from? It is being saved practically from the Lord judging him with an untimely death due to disobeying the gospel truth. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul tells Timothy, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. We know the Lord has already saved Timothy. And those that hear him eternally, legally, and vitally. So how is Timothy saving himself and those that hear him? Once again, it must be a practical salvation from error, misinterpreting God's word. There is steadily approaching the day in which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, and make your calling and election sure today. I am standing in for Brother Joshua Unger. I hope I can do as good a job as I'm sure he would have done were he here to do it for us this morning, this afternoon. We've heard about the eternal phase. We've heard about the legal phase. We've heard about the vital phase. We've just heard about the practical phase. I'm here to tell you about the easy one, the final phase, the last piece. But it's a glorious piece. This is the consummation, the wrapping up of everything that God has intended and God wants to do in his plan of salvation. It started before time began, and it eventuates in eternity. That's what the final phase is. All objectives at this point in time have been realized in the final phase. God wanted a people. He wanted children. They exist. And he's welcoming, welcoming them into his presence in the final phase. It occurs at the very end of time. Once this phase is taken care of, there will be time as we understand it no more. Because we will be in a totally new realm of reality. And this is the full manifestation of God's wisdom, of God's understanding. 
in his counsels for salvation. There's two parts of this phase. There's the condemnation aspect that we want to give and think about for just a second. Over in Revelation chapter 20, in verse 11 through 15, it tells us, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which was in it, and the dead and death and hell were delivered up. And the dead that was in them. And they were judged, every man, according to his works. That's a fearful thing, brethren. Because what do all of our works deserve? Death. There's not a single work anyone can ever do outside of Jesus Christ that's worthy of anything from God but spurning it. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the last judgment. What does it result in? The second death for those who are not God's elect. For those who are not part of that plan from the very beginning, this is where they end up. The lake of fire. A a place that was designed for the devil and his angels. That's where all men but by God's grace would go. This shows us the ultimate penalty for sinning. It's an infinite God that has been offended in sin. What better way to pay for that offense than an infinite place of punishment and chastisement from his presence? That's what the lake of fire is. It shows God's wrath and God's power. Think about it, brethren, when you think about the subject of salvation How does the world get off? How does it miss the boat? It takes one aspect of God's nature and focuses on that exclusively. God is love. Well, I'm here to tell you, and our brethren have already mentioned it beforehand, God is more than love. God is just. God is righteous. God is holy. God is jealous. This is where many of those aspects find fulfillment. In the righteousness of God to damn his enemies in hell. This component is damnation. We see God's justice fully weighed out in the measure and given to those who deserve it. This is the final judgment. And of course, men want to think that God's going to regret that. Oh no. No, 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 no. Jesus Christ is not going to be standing over any parapet crying over people like that. He's going to be rejoicing that his holiness and his righteousness are being fulfilled because they've earned everything they're getting there. But let's look at the better side of this. Let's look at the flip side of this. We've been talking about a plan God had from the very beginning to save some people, to have some children. This is where we see where they end up. This is our final goal, brethren. This is where we see the elect obtaining eternal life. John chapter 5, 
Brother Eric, I think, just talked about it a minute ago. Marvel not at this, 28 and 29, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Right. It's the voice of Jesus Christ. And shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. There's one resurrection. All of us are going to come forward. But which side do you go? Are you going to go to the goat side? Or are you going to go to the sheep side? We're going to the sheep side. That's the resurrection of life. That's where we will, the elect will obtain their goal and have eternal life with God their Father. We'll be forever in the presence of the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter four tells us, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's the consummation, brethren. All the pains, sorrows, and suffering that we've had in this world will be behind us. All the longings. Does your soul ever long for holiness and righteousness? Yes, I know Jesus Christ has put it on us, but we still see the semblances of sin in us, don't we? We still have to fight them off. That day is coming, brethren. When we won't have to fight anymore. It'll be gone. Just like the Lord has given us a new man in regeneration. He's going to give us a new body. And it's not going to have one iota of sin left. It'll be gone. So we'll be able to purely, perfectly enjoy fellowship with him. No doubts. No regrets. Because that's all been taken away. With that last vestige of sin that was in our bodies. We'll be made completely holy. We'll see the riches of the glory of God on whom? Brethren, this is what blows my mind on us. Because we'll be what? We're the vessels of mercy. Talked about in Romans chapter 9 and verse 23. We were made for what purpose? To be emblems, pictures, Of the mercy of God. Not just in this life. But for all eternity. We will be in his presence. As everlasting as hell is. As everlasting a demonstration of the justice. The righteousness. The holiness. The jealousy of God. We in heaven. Will be seeing the mercy. The goodness. The love. The grace of God. We will be those demonst- the ones demonstrating that in our present, in us being in His presence. You know, if you think about the five phases, in the first phase, we're saved from what? The plan of sin. In the second phase, we're saved from what? The penalty of sin. Jesus Christ took it and nailed it to the cross. What happens when we're regenerated? We're saved from the power of sin. We can still sin, but the sin does not have that same power over us because we've got that new man in us. In conversion, that fourth phase, what do we say from there? Practicing sin. Because we've got that new man, we can now practice righteousness. We can do good things. 
we can fulfill the reason that God made us. As our brother pointed out in Ephesians chapter 2. He made us because he wanted us to do good works. We can do that. We can practice righteousness. So we're saved from sin in that regard. In the final phase, we're delivered from even the presence of sin. Because how is that city described that we're going to? It talks about all the dogs and all the liars and all the adulterers. They're outside that city. Nothing makes it into that city but which is pure and holy and righteous. And that's where we'll be. So that even the very presence of sin will be away from. First Thessalonians chapter 4. In wrapping up our consideration of this point. Here where Paul tells the Thessalonians. I've already read it. Let me go down a little further though than I did. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Verse 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Brethren, we can be comforted for the fact that even in this world, even with regenerate natures, even with the instruction of Scripture to be able to do righteousness, we still don't find us doing it. Comfort ourselves, brethren, that the day is coming when we will be forever with Him. Never sinning, always enjoying His blessed fellowship. And may the Lord hasten that day for us. Thank you, brothers for teaching us again and reminding us of the five glorious phases of God's salvation. What are they? What's that first phase? The eternal phase. And that happened in the mind of God in eternity past when he planned for us to be delivered from the plan of sin. What's the second phase? The legal phase when Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary and saved us from the penalty of sin. The third phase, the vital phase, where the Holy Spirit regenerates us, and we have a new man inside, and we are saved from the power of sin. We have the power to practice righteousness, as our brother pointed out. The fourth phase, the practical phase, when we can practice righteousness, and through conversion, we are living for the Lord more and more throughout our life. And the final phase, the eternity in, 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 the he- in heaven with the Lord, when we will be wholly righteous without the presence of sin. A glorious plan of salvation that only a great God could come up with for our benefit and his glory.